Today's scripture reading comes from John 18, 15 to 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now that servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with him, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if, I said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, not once a rooster crowed. This is a word of God. It's a privilege to be able to come up and speak of the word whenever we are able to give the prayers a little bit of a break. But admittedly, this is not a comfortable place for me. So I asked some brothers and sisters at our care group to, to pray for me. And they, one of the encouraging things that was said was, you know, there's less people at church, <laughs> which is actually, it actually worked. This is like less intimidating, which is nice. But then I, I uh, also, you know, kind of ran through it with my wife and, and she gave me a different set of, uh, of advice and said that uh, you got to stick to the script. <laughs> Don't think of yourself greater than what, this, what you've written down. But uh, the best advice, of course, is, is to rely on, on, on his uh, spirit to guide and do his will. So uh, would you join me in prayer before we begin? <clears throat> Father God, um, we pray that it is your will and it is your words as we walk through this account with walk through scripture and talk about Jesus and talk about what it means to love him. Now open our hearts, our minds, and startle us with this truth. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So this account is a, actually a very well-known passage. Um, this account details a pretty critical point in the disciples and, of course, Jesus' ministry. And this is where Jesus 
begins to go alone, taking the necessary steps toward the cross. And Che uh, began talking about that from last week, and we continue that lonely walk to the cross. But before we delve into this passage specifically, we need to see uh, what we has, you know, for us. We need to see the actual background uh, of this event, which incidentally appears in all four Gospels. And that is, of course, the denials of Peter. So we start not with these verses that Jessica just read for us, but actually we kind of rewind a little bit um, when Jesus talks about how he will soon depart from his, his disciples. And this is back in chapter 13. And it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. In other gospel accounts, Peter sounds a little bit more emphatic about this. Um, in, in fact, almost insulted by what Jesus had to say. Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But of course, Jesus tells him that he will indeed deny him three times before early morning, before this rooster crows three times. To which, again, Peter argues and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's from Matthew 26. So that's what happens before um, when Jesus is talking about and, and uh, you know, we see Peter denying and we see this foretelling by Jesus. And for a while, Peter actually shows his mettle. Even last week, Che gave us a very vivid account of how Peter, this fisherman, this untrained and armed combat person, was so energized and so zealous that he managed to cut off a guard's ear, and he seemed ready to take on the other 649 armed guards. And now we see Jesus taken away at night uh, to a private courtyard of a former high priest named Anas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the actual current high priest. Now, these two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, they had enormous power. They were key religious figures and political figures that had actually a pretty tricky job of navigating their Israelite distinct people as well as being under Roman rule as a province. So they bring Jesus, in this, again, in the middle of the night to this gated courtyard house where they conduct what would be a highly irregular, highly illegal questioning. But this is the kind of power these priests had. And this is where we find Peter, who, unlike many of his other disciples, had the courage to follow this procession in this courtyard and managed to slip in to witness these less than legal proceedings, slipping in with someone who knew the priest. So let's read again this first denial. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, as we said, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So this is Peter's first denial. A couple of quick observations about this. First, from a tactical perspective, from like a strategy perspective, you can see what Peter may be doing here. He needed to follow with a person in the know to get into this private residence of this very powerful person. You know, most people didn't belong there. And it was not a public gathering. And, and so you can kind of understand there's some tactical, maybe necessary clandestine moves that needed to happen for Peter to accomplish this objective. Now, second, the objective itself, it's actually a pretty noble objective, right? You know, his friend is going into this illegal situation, this inquiry. And remember, Peter just protested and, and, and just talked about his enthusiasm for Jesus. And he wasn't going to let anything happen to his friend. So Peter's motive is quite clear and quite noble. Peter cares for Jesus and is willing to go that extra mile for him. And thirdly, this may be far less noble. But this first denial was in response to a servant girl's inquiry. Now, all four gospel accounts make note of this specific detail. You know, it is difficult for us to know what Peter exactly thought of this servant girl. But if it's anything like the culture and the society at the time, he completely dismissed her. Gave her no heed trivialized her importance. Had it been, let's say, an important, powerful man, an officer maybe, things might have been much more difficult for him to get around, but it wasn't. Now we can spend a lot more time on these points here, but that was the situation at the first denial. Ultimately, you can call it strategic, you know, serving a greater purpose, or just found the situation and the person who was kind of hindering maybe a trivial or in the way. Whatever it was, this was Peter's first denial. And it seemed easy. Perhaps maybe not a big deal. But we'll come back to that. But shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about denial. What does this episode, this narrative show us about the nature of denial? what we are doing when we deny something, and what Peter was doing when he denied Jesus. You know, I've said this, and I've heard other Christians say this, that, you know, I wish I were one of those people who lived in the time of Jesus. You know, to be able to hear him, to listen to his sermons, and to maybe even touch Jesus. Well, Peter was there. He was an eyewitness. We know this, and historical documents attest to this as well. Peter had a personal relationship with the person Jesus. 
He walked with him, seen him heal, seen him raise the dead, just saw him bring down hundreds of armed guards to the ground. Peter had this knowledge. He had the data. So it's clearly not about the data. So what was it? Why was Peter capable of doing what he did? Now, denial is declaring something as being untrue. In this case, Peter declared that he was not a disciple of Jesus when, in fact, he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, you can deny many things. You know, there are groups of people who deny whole lots of things. I'm sure you've heard of them. Round Earth deniers, 9-11 deniers, Holocaust deniers, and we're probably reading about corona deniers these days as well. But in order to understand why Peter did this, we need to look a little deeper even still into the root of why people deny things despite the evidence. What's at the core of denial? The core is self-deception. And let's talk about self-deception for a minute. Now, self-deception can take the shape of many things, or called many things. You know, not facing the truth, delusion, uh, mistaken belief, hypocrisy, avoidance, rationalization. Um, that, the Bible mentions it quite a number of times, and they portray it as foolishness the inability to see the truth and then act on it. So whatever you want to call it, self-deception is actually a pretty huge topic, but for our purposes, it's helpful to kind of focus on the theological rather than the traditional analytical or psychological view of what self-deception is. So for that, of course, I went to the commentaries, the Gospel Coalition libraries and other theological and biblical essays, and, and I found one especially uh, helpful by uh, a professor named Joseph Pack, who's a associate professor of biblical studies at Taylor University. And this is what, in aggregate, is what I found. In contrast to regular view, a regular view of self-deception, the theological concept of self-deception is actually much more serious. The theological definition is much more closely related to sin. As Professor Pack puts it, the unbeliever will not believe the truth because he is a sinner and his judgment is fatally infected by his sin. He is comfortable with sin and does not want to accept an unflattering account of his life. So to unpack this, let's take a look at self-deception by asking three questions. One, how does sin cause self-deception? Two, what is the danger of self-deception? And three, what can be done about it? So the first one, how does our sin cause self-deception? So let's look at the next set of verses, the account of Jesus as he's being questioned by Annas, the high priest. This is from verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. 
I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what do we see here? You know, Jesus tells Annas that he taught openly to the world. The information of the truth was out there for anyone. Jesus says that he had said nothing in secret. So just like in Peter's case, the information was there. The data was there. In fact, these priests were there at the raising of, Jesus from, um, raising of Lazarus from the dead. We see here that these men who Jesus is answering to are clearly not seeing the plain truth. So something is happening between receiving the information and evidence and then acting based on this truth. Of course, we know this disconnect is caused by sin. Effectively, our sinful nature distorts the truth and makes us frame decisions and our world perspective to our liking. Our sin makes us see the world according to what we want to see, which could be vastly different from the truth. When we lose sight of God as our ultimate desire, and instead we look for anything else beside God, we make idols of those things, which is sin, and that sin distorts the truth and deceives us. We may call this sin the sin of idolatry. We may call this sin the sin of worshiping something else. But either way, it is the violation of God's commandment, and it is sin. So let's take this narrative as an example. The priests and guards are in charge of a Jewish community, um, their family and their society. And we know how central the Jewish faith is to Jewish society. The laws, tradition, the culture is actually a, a core part of their identity, a core part of their being. And these priests and others in charge are the ones protecting their way of life against the world. And even more importantly, they are protecting at this time against influences of the Roman rulers. So from a pure objective perspective, you can see that it's actually a noble one. Unfortunately, when the priests and the establishment are confronted with the truth that things are gonna be radically changed with the arrival of Jesus, their true affections start bubbling up to the surface, become very evident. So instead of realizing, yes, this is what the scriptures and the laws were pointing to. There's one, here's the one that we're waiting for. This is the one that the prophet Isaiah and our forefathers, Moses, David, these forefathers were talking about Jesus, and he's here. Instead of, instead of realizing that truth, and despite all the evidence pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, what emerges is what's actually number one in their hearts. What begins and perhaps was a noble objective, a noble desire, becomes an ultimate desire, 
and the inability to see the truth comes to the surface. So instead of re-looking at the evidence and seeing the truth, because sin has taken hold, the sin of idolatry, the sin that makes uh, you worship maybe status, your status quo, your wealth, your power, your position, which are not necessarily bad things, but when they become ultimate things, you start digging in. You deny and you deny and you dig in. You're afraid of anything that would threaten this. So you get testy, nasty, anxious about losing the thing you hold most dear. And as we see in this narrative, you strike Jesus and you lock him away, ready to be killed. Romans 1, 21 to 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, a modern example. I don't know how much you guys know about a man named Bernie Madoff. He was a money manager. And ultimately, he ran a fraud for decades, a Ponzi scheme that actually cost billions and billions of dollars to his clients, $65 billion, to be precise about it. Now, lots have been written about this fraud and the fallout since it was discovered in 2008, finally, after, again, decades and decades of this going on. But when you read the accounts of the victims as they're interviewed by different journalists, there's some weird common theme that starts to take shape. You know, many of his victims of this scheme were more afraid of not being part of his exclusive client list, part of a, a group of people in the know about this special fund that doesn't go up and down, just kind of chugs along 10% a year, 10% a year regardless of the gyrations of the market. So instead of questioning these really mathematically impossible returns, there's just going and saying, I'm part of that list. I'm part of that list. I'm part of that culture. But don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming these victims. In fact, even after several investigations and whistleblowers over the years starting presenting hard evidence about this fraud, not even the Securities and Exchange Commission, this is the regulatory body of the market, looked into it at the time. Why was that? Because Bernie was around for so many decades and he helped actually build parts of the market, they assumed he was one of the good guys. So based, they based their conclusions not on what they actually saw in evidence, but they, what they wanted to see. Their true affections were laid bare. They saw a guy who was making a, a great returns and was a legend in the market. They were blind to see the actual evidence. And unfortunately, that blindness ended up costing a lot. Those results were tragic. You know, huge destruction of wealth, distrust, stories of suicide, depression, financial ruin, lives destroyed. You know, Bernie is now behind bars, serving out a 150-year sentence. And he's been ordered to repay and pay penalties 
to the sum of $170 billion. $170 billion of restitution for one person. He's 82 years old. That leads us to point number two related to self-deception. And that is, what is the danger of self-deception? Perhaps we touched on some of that already. You know, when you think about Bernie Madoff and 170 billion. But unfortunately, it is actually much more serious than that. Let's continue to read from John. This is from verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. That's number two. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now this account in John is pretty generous, pretty straightforward. This is Mark's account of Peter's denials. This is from the second denial on. And the servant girl saw him and again and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said again uh, to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So going back to Peter's first denial, that first denial, let's just say, was not much of a hurdle. But already we see a big progression here with the second and third denials. You see how sin ensnares. The first one is free, so to speak. It gets you what you want. It reinforces control. It may even feel good. But now in a very short period of time, we see Peter invoking a curse on himself and swear that he does not know Jesus. Peter was deceived into thinking that he was better served by denying Jesus, cleverer. He can get what he wants. All of what Peter was professing back in chapter 13 went out the window for the sake of what? Maybe a little protection, maybe an objective, maybe some momentary comfort. And that little window of the first denial, that first rationalization, that first act of foolishness opens up to Peter sin that's allowed to fester and get enlarged and engorged and ensnare Peter. That's the insidious danger of self-deception and sin. You can be fooled into thinking you're okay, but the cost is much more, much more than $170 billion. The cost is your soul. And on top of that, that downward spiral can wreak absolute evil on others along with it. In a, in a sermon addressing this huge question of what is wrong with us, the human race, Pastor Tim Keller says, self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but 
It's the reason we can do the worst things. He cites among his, disciples, uh, his examples the Holocaust, where people who were near the camps saying they didn't know what was going on. But perhaps they knew something was wrong, but they didn't want to know, even as they saw bodies being carted out of the camps. These same officials in these camps, I mean, in these towns nearby the camps, after testimonies and questioning, ended up hanging themselves out of guilt. No, it's a series of little deceptions, little lies to yourself that start to add up, and sooner than later, you're in deep. Even Madoff, he didn't start off creating the world's largest Ponzi scheme. He started off small. You know, no one imagines a $65 fraud that ends up with your son commuting, uh, committing suicide, your wife never talking to you again, and you serving a 150-year sentence. The cost is great. One can wreak great havoc to those around you as you slowly succumb to sin, ultimately losing your soul in the end. So that comes to now the last point, which is what can be done about it? You know, Professor Pack makes some helpful suggestions. He says that the first step is to acknowledge that self-deception is a very pervasive and persistent problem. We must acknowledge that we are all sinners susceptible to deceiving ourselves. You know, Psalm 14 tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In other words, we're all sinners. And because of that, we must admit and we must know that we are vulnerable to sin and susceptible to commit the worst of things. The worst of atrocities are plausible because of sin. So understanding our biases, our ultimates in our lives is critical. This calls for self-examination. You know, questions like, you know, what are kind of my hot buttons? What are areas in my life that maybe I'm not looking at with the evidence surrounding me? What are others saying about me? What are the fruits of my efforts? Are there any unconfessed sins? Do I have any grudges or regrets that often come back into my thinking? And from there, we have to confess sin and become open to the truth of the evidence and the reality that we are in desperate need of outside help. We must acknowledge that we cannot do it ourselves, that we cannot perceive reality with our own might. And according to the account of Peter's denials in Mark, after Peter realized that he denied Jesus three times with the rooster crowing, he broke down and wept. What is God doing here? He's helping us acknowledge our sins 
and to be grieved by them. That crow actually helped. Peter was going down a dangerous path. His sin pattern was pretty one direction, going from a white lie to a full-blown outright one, curse-filled and all. But what we see here, what should encourage us is there's little interventions along the way. Jesus' words, in the foretelling of Peter's denials, replete with this morning cry of the rooster, helped wake Peter up to the reality of sin and self-deception. Peter's awakened from this delusion and weeps. You know, God sometimes uses pain as a megaphone to help us, to rouse us awake from our stupor. That's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our, in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse us, rouse a, a deaf world. Only Jesus can help us. Only Jesus can restore. Restoration is absolutely complete only through Jesus. But we see here that it's not without pain. Later on in John, after Jesus is crucified, dead and buried, and raised from the dead, he comes to Peter and his disciples. This is from John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, we won't go into this passage in deep. In fact, I'm 100% sure Rob will do a much better job when we get to this passage Uh, But I want to highlight just a few key points. First off, Jesus fully restores Peter. You know, three denials, three questions to restore. There's a balance here. Jesus fully restores Peter. Nothing incomplete, complete restoration. Nothing hanging. Second, Peter calls, um, Jesus calls Peter to act. We study the whole book on how to act in reaction to the gospel, James. But Jesus says for Peter to tend to his sheep, there is a call to respond to his mercy. When Jesus restores us and our affections are more aligned to God, we can be radically free to serve. And lastly, we know that it cannot be quite completely pleasant. You know, we see Peter grieved as Jesus asked him a third time whether Peter loved Jesus. Perhaps Peter was recalling his own sin, 
I don't know what was going on in Peter's heart. But this is just a good reminder that following Jesus is not easy. We may be radically free to serve in the way that he wants us to, but it will not be, it will not be comfortable. It will be absolutely uncomfortable to let go of your control, let go of your wealth, perhaps your goals, because you've made these good things as ultimate things in your life. But we know that there's you know, a slight momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glory of being with God forever. You know, in the end, the takeaway is this. Sin distorts your reality. That leads to self-deception, which leads to things like denying Christ, among other horrible things. But Jesus saves, and if Christ is at your center, meaning if he is your ultimate, instead of anything else, then you become far humble, more humble, open to criticism, empathetic to the suffering, far less greedy and far less self-serving, and much more in touch with reality, and much more like Jesus. And we see Peter ending up this way, saved and restored by Jesus. You know, Che uh, led us through our prayer time this past Tuesday, and just how God works. It's God's providence. He used the words of Peter to help us lead us in prayer time. And we see that Peter's transformed as he writes these words, and this is how we will conclude today. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 to 10. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform, conform to your calling and election, for if you have practiced these qualities, you will never fail. It's encouraging to see Peter transformed writing these words for us to put in our hearts. So with that, uh, let us pray. Father, thank you for um, showing us the deadliness, the false gospel of ultimate things that are not you. Father, uh, transform our hearts, transform our um, desires that we may look to you for everything. Thank you for this account of Peter and what he's got, had to go through to show us the deadliness of sin. Let us confess and look to you for forgiveness and full restoration. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.